When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're beginning to learn what's happening in people's brains, including your brain and my brain, when we feel really centered, really grounded, calm, clear, strong, loving, and happy. And we learn as well from the people who've made it their life's work to develop those qualities as traits, these seven qualities, which I'll name and we'll get into, and then how you actually practice these ways of being and through practicing them, strengthen and stabilize them. You're listening to Rick Hansen on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Psychologists Off the Clock is so happy to be partnering with Praxis Continuing Education. They offer programming for mental health practitioners in a lot of the areas that we've discussed on the show. And we're extra excited to announce a six-week program with Dr. Robin Walser that's going to be starting May 15th that we highly recommend. It's on treating trauma with ACT. And Dr. Walser, as you know, is such an expert in the field. We've had her on the show a number of times. And she is going to talk about how to use ACT principles like mindfulness and acceptance in your trauma treatment repertoire, how to discover the power of leveraging the therapeutic stance in trauma treatment. She'll review the current state of research on using ACT in trauma. And you'll learn to navigate client challenges that are specific to trauma. So check that out at praxisce2.net. You can also find it through our sponsorship page. 
We're also really excited about Rick Hansen's new book and, and his online programming that's associated with the book Neurodharma. You can check out Neurodharma, the program, through our sponsorship page, and there is a special coupon code for $40 off if you go through us. So check that out at offtheclockpsych.com. Hope to see you there. Diane, I'm so happy to be here with you to introduce a two-part series with Rick Hansen introducing his new book that he's releasing this week, Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Rick Hansen has been a previous guest of ours, and I loved his episode with you where he talked about a lot of different elements of his work, but his new book is just chock full of all the amazing practices, all the science, all the Buddhist wisdom that is so core to his work across the board. And I know that for you, this was really a, a very impactful book, even though you've read so many of his books and have loved all of his work all along. So what, what for you was so special about this particular book? Well, I think Neurodharma is really a culmination of his life's work, right? So we're getting to read from a master who has spent many decades both studying Buddhism and applying it in his life as well as studying neuroscience. And so he takes the most cutting edge concepts of neuroscience, translates them in a way that are totally accessible and makes sense, and then applies them to Buddhism. So it's just, it's great. I mean, it's all some of all my favorite things in one spot. So of course, <laughs> I love it. The way that he breaks it down makes it so that you can go, walk yourself through this program and the program builds upon itself, both in the book and his online program of Neurodharma, which we've been promoting for a while because we've both been using it. And in the, in the online program, he adds in meditations, he adds in handouts, he adds in uh, talks by him so that you get these little lessons on practices, everything from how to steady your mind, how to experience wholeness and connectedness, how to be in the now. And they're really uh, meaningful and transformative. He really does bring a lot of these complicated practices into a format that's just really accessible that you can use on a daily basis to um, build all sorts of attributes, strengths, qualities of being that really can help you to live more contentedly. If you go to our sponsorship page, you can find out more about his program and get a discount on Neurodharma. And now that we're all stuck at home, it's a really good time to take advantage of doing some of these kind of learning activities from home. So we hope that you enjoy part one of this two-part series of Rick Hansen talking about his new book, Neurodharma. Dr. Rick Hansen is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, New York Times bestselling author, host of the podcast Being Well, originator of the wonderful online course Foundations of Wellbeing, and we are proud to say a previous huh. guest on Psychologists Off the Clock. His body of work is impressive to say the least, and we are here to discuss his latest book, the just-released Neurodharma, New Science, Ancient Wisdom, and Seven Practices of the Highest Happiness. Welcome, Dr. Hansen. Oh, thank you. Uh, call me Rick, and let me make sure I pronounce your name correctly, Yale. Yes, perfect. Well, Rick, we are so happy to have you back here. Earlier interview with Diana, episode 122, uh, exploring the kinds of practices that help transform the mind was captivating, and we were so excited that you were willing to return and talk to us about your latest book. I wonder if you could start us off by describing what you are trying to accomplish in neurodharma. How does it mm. build on your previous work? Yeah. Well, I was reflecting on that a little bit, preparing, as it were, for talking with you. And the first thing I want to say is that as a longtime psychologist and someone interested in human potential broadly, um, one thing that's striking about people is the range. And that's a common factor, or common thing, you know, a feature of our minds that's noted in psychology. In other words, there's a range from, for example, terrible clinical depressive despair all the way out to peak experiences. It's the full range. And uh, the mental health field has been particularly interested in moving from minus 10 to zero, historically focused on pathology. Increasingly, there's been an interest in moving above the waterline, above zero into, you know, the ones and twos and threes of everyday well-being. And increasingly, there's science about the upper reaches of the human potential range moving up toward eight, nine, and 10. And so in that context, I did what people do when they want to understand how to do something better, study people who are really good at it 
and then do a kind of reverse engineering. So we now know a lot about what's going on in the brains of people when they're depressed or stressed or anxious. We're beginning to learn what's happening in people's brains, including your brain and my brain, uh, when we feel really centered, really grounded, calm, clear, strong, loving, and happy. What's happening then? And what can we learn as well from the people who've made it their life's work to develop those qualities as traits so they're increasingly stable even as challenges grow? Uh, Richie Davidson, you may now described the long-term contemplatives, people who meditate a lot and have a lot over their life, as the Olympic athletes of mental training. So we can study them and increasingly start to plausibly understand what's going on inside the hardware, what's happening inside the coconut, you know, the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the head. What's happening in there when we are as strong, as happy, as loving, and clear as we can ever be? And so what I've done in my book is identify seven kind of core qualities uh, that we all experience one way or another and are really developed uh, in the process of what could be called awakening broadly across the world's traditions, including secular traditions. These seven qualities, which I'll name and we'll get into. And then the book focuses, because I'm a practical methods guy, uh, on practices. How do you actually practice these ways of being and through practicing them, strengthen and stabilize them? So increasingly, that's who you are wherever you go. Yeah. Well, I love both that this book and your work more broadly speaking, is really centered in ancient wisdom and modern science. I mean, it's such a cool integration of what people have been studying for thousands of years and what we've only more recently been able to explore in the laboratory. Mm. Um, And one thing that I think just strikes me because this book is so rich, both in the ancient philosophy and in the complexities of the modern science what was it like for you to integrate these two divergent, broad, and, and complicated literatures? And how, also, this is a slightly separate question, but I'm curious, how surprised were you to find so many levels of convergence between ancient wisdom and modern science? Well, a lot there. Um, so as a kind of metaphor, kind of drawing on my own background in rock climbing, being in the mountains, and uh, the opening paragraph of the book talks about an experience I've had in the mountains where a friend who's farther up the path maybe a better climber, maybe someone who's more fit than I am. Uh, there's a long list of people who are more fit than I am, I'm sure. But anyway, so my friend turns and with this really sweet gesture, beckons me onward with a smile, maybe a cautionary note, watch out for the ice. There's a log there. You can do it. Quit loafing, Hanson. Get up here. You know, something friendly. Boom, boom, up the mountain. And in much the same way, I think of those who have gone as far as you can in human potential, um, saints, sages, teachers, and very ordinary people no one has ever heard of, themselves farther up the mountain of awakening, turning with that same gesture of welcoming and invitation and, and encouragement. And so that's a very fundamental metaphor for me. As you approach the pinnacle of whatever is possible for human beings in this reality, um, the paths converge, and maybe someone began in a Jewish tradition. Maybe someone started with secular mindfulness. Maybe someone like myself is really trained in the original teachings of the Buddha. Whatever your path might be, but as you get closer and closer and closer, people look more and more alike. So I want to be clear, there are many roots up the mountain of awakening. The one that I know well is uh, can, is Buddhism, particularly the Theravadan roots of Buddhism before it developed further in its Tibetan, Chinese, Zen, and Pure Land streams. So that's the one I'm teaching from. And I am drawing on the voice of the Buddha, as best we know, coming to us from 2,500 years ago and his contemporaries. And it's, it's a voice of awakening. And it's also a voice of a penetrating and completely, I'll dare I say it, secular psychological analysis of the mind. There's very little metaphysics. There's very little that's supernatural uh, in the original teachings of the Buddha. It's very direct especially in a good translation. So to marry that most radical, penetrating understanding, revelatory understanding of our own consciousness, to marry that with the most granular, current, cutting-edge, cellular, molecular, biochemical understanding of neuroscience, 
is super cool. It's super cool. (laughs) It's super cool. And it's super useful. You have to be a little careful. And I try to be careful. That's one reason why there are a million reference notes, because I had to carve out all kinds of topics and acknowledge all kinds of things. So then I could kind of go down the road up the main line. And the book itself, if you ignore the reference notes, is actually fairly readable. It's quite readable. I think it's warm, it's accessible, it's encouraging. We keep going. But there's so much kind of buried in the reference notes. And it was fun for me to be thorough about it. And um, I'll confess something I've never confessed publicly, which is I'm a West Coast guy. I kind of grew up in California, although my cultural roots run through North Dakota and the Midwest. That's kind of how I identify myself. And one thing I've noticed over the years is a certain prejudice from East Coasters. I know you work at Brown, present company excluded. But there's I grew kind of, up in California if it's a comfort. Okay, okay, okay. We're on the same page then. That's great. Anyway, so there's kind of this prejudice that West Coasters are, are lazy, you know, navel-gazing, hot tub people, you know, da-da-da-da-da, quiche eaters. And uh, I like the idea of the fact that, honestly, no, a lot of good scholarships coming out of the West Coast and a lot of good business technology stuff is coming out of the West Coast. So there's a part of me that really likes the feeling of uh, I have the goods, right? Our son played poker partly to put himself through college. That's a whole other story. And there's this phrase, I got the nuts. You know, you've got an ace in your hand. I mean, I just want to have the evidence, right? And it was reassuring to bring that kind of, no, this really is solid. No, there really is a study for that. No, that really is what the Buddha said. So that, that was very reassuring for me too. Yeah. Well, and I love that the title Neurodharma stands for the truth of the mind, which is grounded in the truth of the body. And it's really proven by the modern science, even though it's steeped in the ancient wisdom. I I think it's such a cool integration and it really does provide a lot of incentive to suggest that these to try these practices out because there's a lot of evidence to show that they work, right? And we want to do things that work. We want to um, support the things that work. And I think that's really what your larger body of work, as well as this more recent book really helps to do. Yeah. And I think we have to be careful that we don't overclaim. On the other hand, we have to be careful that we don't underclaim. And also uh, the context is different between doing bench science and the standards standards for vetting truth claims are really different from what is appropriate to do with a client in, in the therapy office or when teaching a stress management program in a hospital or talking with people in a self-help framework about what could be plausible with low risk to try on your own to see if it's helpful for you. And I think sometimes people are afraid to um, connect the dots that are available to connect with modesty and with respect for what's still a great mystery. And then on the basis of that, as the Buddha said, see for yourself, try it out. And if it's beneficial, if some way of understanding your own mind grounded in what's emerging about the hardware of the brain, if some understanding about your own mind draws you to do something when you're talking with your partner or remembering something upsetting from your childhood or meditating and going into the deeper end of the pool. If you try something out and it's useful, that's evidence. It's evidence from a first-person perspective based on the operation of from a third-person perspective of the underlying hardware of the body, but it's still evidentiary. It's still useful information. Why not keep on going? And that's the spirit of encouragement. Again, like those people farther up the mountain, they say, hey, come and join us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're speaking to a larger truth that I think I always come back to in my psychological practice as well as my personal practice, which is I think it can be useful to start with ancient wisdom and modern science, but you need to combine it with your self-knowledge. And we're all, you know, very similar to one another, but we all also differ. And, Mm -hmm. And to have enough of a sense of self and yeah. and a willingness to look at what works for you and what doesn't in the context of what we know from, you know, wise people who have come before us and from oh, yeah. what's been tested in the laboratory. And when yeah. you put those together, you have a strong foundation to work from to yeah. figure out how you do, you know, move away from depression and into greater happiness. Yeah. For so two things here. First, as 
I mentioned to you before we began, I take vitamins and um, I took a vitamin this morning that has lodged in my throat. And so it's been stuck there for about an hour. It's gradually going to dissolve. I'm really okay. But the fundamental question is, what's a person's state of being when they're challenged? All right. One of the key takeaways from this material, including the material that I explored in the book, is that these practices are not about what it feels like to be you when you're lying there in a hammock and you're getting IV chocolate and a mani-pedi. I've never had a mani-pedi. I should get one. But anyway, <laughs> uh, and everybody's whispering in your ear. That's easy. But what do you do when you've got a pill stuck in your throat or your back is killing you or you're trying to get a toddler into a car seat? Or having you're, a fight with your partner. Yeah. Can you maintain what I call an unshakable core in the ground of your being around which other things are happening? And, I, and to me, that's a reasonable aspiration. And that's the fundamental standard. You know, what's your resting state? Uh, what's in the core of your being, even when you're challenged? What's the quality of feeling in the background of awareness? And when you want to, it will. Can you drop into some pretty profound places? Those are legitimate questions, and they're with it. They're attainable. We can grow and develop in those ways. And to me, that's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about uh, walking around in a state of white light consciousness all the time, although that's pretty cool for at least an hour or two, and then you kind of come back to normal reality. But um, I'm really talking about here, what's it like to be you when you're driving in traffic or doing the dishes or, as you said, arguing with your partner? That's yeah. the real test. Yeah. And so let's, let's sort of come back to what are some of those core qualities. So you yeah. dedicated this book to your many teachers, which mm -hmm. I love. Um, uh, teachers don't get enough credit in yeah. general. Um, but you describe some core features of enlightened individuals who mm -hmm. have been your teachers throughout your life. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what the teachers that you so admire have in common and why are these characteristics so useful for the rest of us, normal, ordinary people who don't live in an ashram to cultivate? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I, there are different ways, I'm sure, of sorting this out. But for me, there are seven qualities that are that are undeniable, and they're essentially a cluster of qualities. So first quality is steadiness of mind. There's a stability of presence, of mindfulness. There's also a capacity to control attention, uh, pull it away from what's not useful, rest it on what is, and become deeply concentrated, You know, including in non-ordinary states of meditative absorption if that's of interest to a person, steadiness of mind. Second, there's a warmth of heart, compassion, kindness, lovingness. I had a friend who trained as a monk in Asia for nine plus years. I asked him if he ever met anyone who was enlightened. And he said, well, in that tradition, there's much more testing and they watch you for a while, right? But he, and he laughed. He said, yeah, I definitely met some people who were considered to be extremely far along, if not fully cooked. And he said they were always alike. They were always the same. I went, what do you mean? He said, well, no, sometimes they were funny. Sometimes they were serious. But in this sense, they were always the same. If you were nice to them, they really loved you. If you were mean to them, they really loved you. In other words, their love was unshakable. Now they might do something like tell you, you have to leave the monastery because you're growing marijuana in the jungle. And that's not cool as a monk in Thailand, maybe, but they still really loved you and you were welcome to come back. So a steadiness of warmth of heart. Third, a quality of equanimity in the waves of life, a stability of walking evenly as it were over uneven ground, a stability of peace, contentment, and love, and an absence of craving. This goes to the Buddhist teaching about the second and third noble truths of craving creating suffering and less craving leading to happiness and wisdom. And so how do we actually do that? You know, particularly as a biological character who's designed to crave in order to live and survive. So fullness, I call that resting in fullness. And then um, kind of speeding up here, the remaining four really move into the deep end of the pool. Um, there's a sense in these people that they are integrated and whole. Deep self-acceptance, nothing's left out. They're not lying about anything or denying anything. They're not racked with inner conflict. And their consciousness has this non-dual quality of awareness and its contents as one single field, wholeness. Also, a sense of being completely in the present, not obsessing about the future, not worrying about the past, 
receiving nowness right at the emergent edge of the moment um, before suffering has time to sink its roots in right now. Then we have, they report a sense of being one with everything. You know, the joke about the Dalai Lama and the hot dog vendor, make me one with everything, right? And so it's that oneness with everything, non-dual awareness, where you have a sense of just being a local expression in the vast tapestry of reality, rather than a beleaguered, isolated, separated self at war with everything. Here too, um, self-centeredness drops away, self-referential processing drops away. Uh, There's a beautiful summary line from the great Zen teacher Dogen in the 1200s in Japan said to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to perceive oneself as all things. Whoa. So that's very cool. And then the seventh quality, this is the this is the potentially controversial one because it gets into what may well lie beyond ordinary reality. Now, if people want to stay inside the frame of ordinary reality, the natural frame, so-called, or if people are you know, committed to a stance, which is their right of atheism or agnosticism, that's fine. But there's a lot of language in the early teachings of the Buddha and definitely a lot that's found in the other traditions of the world that does point to some possibility beyond ordinary reality. So I engage this material not from the standpoint of trying to persuade anyone. I try to really mark the distinctions that are present here and yet be also respectful of the fact that for many people, they can't imagine deep practice without reference to the transcendental. And what might that be? The Buddha used language that was very spare, uh, like the unconditioned, the deathless, the unchanging. Uh, A way of thinking about this is that he pointed out that conditioned phenomena, in other words, the conditioned stream of consciousness, one thing leading to another, like a bunch of dominoes falling, or conditioned physical reality dating all the way back to the Big Bang, it's always changing. And so it's an unstable, unreliable basis for the most sublime, enduring happiness. So he looked for what was less and less conditioned or fabricated or constructed. And a way to understand this um, is in terms of, uh, you know, a sense of what is unconditioned in our own consciousness in the sense that awareness is unconditioned because it can represent anything moving through it. Or more deeply, whoa, what might lie beyond the veil, right? And and which and that which is unconditioned. And if it's unconditioned, it's unchanging, therefore timeless, therefore eternal. And perhaps uh, with always a quality of unconditioned possibility, always just prior to this moment of conditioned actuality. Whoa, very cool <laughs> stuff. And the, the net of that is for people who are very far along, um, you just feel like there's a light shining through them that's not entirely their own. Like there's a feeling in them, they kind of talk about it, where they just feel rested in timelessness while time passes through. And how can we get that ourselves? And I can see in your face right now, you have a feeling for this. And that's one of the key takeaways. Even the things that sound kind of exotic, we all have a feeling for them. We all know what it's like one time or another to be very loving, very balanced in equanimity, to feel wide open and undefended in the moment, connected with everything, maybe with some sense of awe or mystery or vastness or timelessness. We all have a feeling for this. And then the question is, can you live there increasingly? Can you be established in these ways of being? progressively over time, which inside ordinary reality must involve lasting changes in your brain, rested in your body altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's maybe start by talking a little bit about the neurological basis for why it's hard, why those conditions aren't just naturally inherent in our brain. And one of the things that I wanted to mention is that as I was reading your book, I was also reading a beautiful memoir. It's called Wild Games by Adrian Brodeur. And there was this line that stuck out to me because of your book. The quote is, why is it that an insult stays with you forever, whereas love and praise passes through you like water through a sieve? Can you talk a little bit about why suffering sticks and how knowing about the basis of our suffering can help us work with the neuroplasticity of our minds? 
Oh, you're getting at one of the most useful ideas from neuroscience, the negativity bias of the brain. It's this fundamental quality it has that's uh, shaped by evolution because it helps creatures live to see the sunrise in the wild. It's this fundamental tendency to scan for bad news, over-focus upon it, overreact to it, and fast-track that whole package into emotional memory. And then gradually become sensitized to the negative over time through the activity of the stress hormone cortisol. That's the summary of the negativity bias. And yeah. I say it's like having a brain that's Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And so you're exactly right. Um, we, I use the metaphor myself that positive experiences pass through us like water through a sieve while negative ones get routinely caught. And for me, the takeaway from that is to... Um, Draw upon emotionally painful experiences like anxiety or frustration or loneliness or inadequacy or guilt or shame. Use them. Don't let them use you. If we fight with them, if we suppress them, they just get stronger. What you resist persists in the saying. But second, don't feed and follow them. Don't ally with the inner attackers inside your own mind. Quit feeding the beast. Pull out of running laps around the rumination track, digging a little deeper each time you go around it. Don't feed them. And in particular, focus on growing flowers in the garden of your mind, not just obsessing about the weeds. And shift attention as much as you can when it's appropriate to what's authentically beneficial and good. And then slow down for a breath or longer, feel it in your body, focus on what's rewarding about it to actually hardwire the somatic, emotional, attitudinal, interpersonal, etc., residues of that good experience of feeling heard or feeling connected, which you're giving me a lot of that here, um, to really, really, really let that sink in. Yeah. I mean, you write, and I love this quote, but the brain takes its shape from what you rest your attention on through having a sense again and again of steadiness, lovingness, fullness, wholeness, newness, allness, and timelessness, you'll be weaving together these qualities into your own nervous system. And that's really what Neurodharma, your book, guides us to do, is to be more skillful in what we rest our attention on and how we rest our attention on it. But what I love about your work is that it doesn't deny the fact that we're going to have difficult experiences, pain, that our mind is going to want to pay attention to some of the negative information that comes in or some of the dangers or some of the craving. That's hardwired into us and we can't pretend that away, nor can we delete it. But what we can do is build these practices that balance it in ways that help us to experience more happiness, more more wholeness, more peace. Yeah, that's totally true. And these, you know, I I am still on the, I'm working my way up the mountain. You know, I still have a ways to go. I can still see people at the mountain of awakening who are farther along than I am. And, and I like that because it gives me something to, to aspire to and be inspired by. And, uh, these qualities that get cultivated are, you could say at the essence of mental health, right? And especially the first three that developing the steadiness of mind, emotional self-regulation, impulse control, executive function, uh, lifting mood, uh, finding compassion for yourselves, finding compassion for others, and establishing a fundamental equanimity as you rest in a feeling of fullness already, of contentment already, enoughness already, as you continue to dream big dreams. Dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it. I mean, this is really useful in everyday life. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the practices that go along with, um, let's start with studying the mind. So mm-hmm. first, how would you describe what it means to have a steady mind? And then maybe we can talk about some of the practical things that one can do to start developing a steadier mind. Yeah. Well, what's not a steady mind is the normal person. Condition. The monkey mind, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, research shows if you ping people uh, randomly throughout a day, 50% of the time, on average, their mind is wandering. 
they're not in the present. And um, there's a lot of research that shows that as mind-wandering increases, so typically does negative affect, negative emotion, worry, anxiety, depression, irritation, resentment, and self-criticism, and so forth. So a steady mind is not a distracted mind. And also, it's a mind that's not sucked in and uh, caught up and trapped by preoccupations of one kind or another, because a steady mind is one that can be moved away from all that. And a steady mind is very useful because attention is the front end of the process of neuroplastic change. I think of it as like a vacuum cleaner with a light on it, attention. It sucks what it rests upon into the brain, particularly if what you're paying attention to is negative. So that's steadiness of mind. Along with those qualities of stable mindfulness, you know, real-time mindfulness, it's easy to be mindful over the course of half of a breath. How about staying completely present for four breaths in a row and then 10? A lot of people, that's a serious challenge. And then do 10 tens in a row. That's a steady mind. And um, in the meditative traditions as well, the notion of steadiness of mind is that it's kind of like a laser that gives you penetrating insight, liberating insight into your own mind. Because as your mind steadies, as you train, you become more and more able to discern subtler and subtler events, more and more fleeting events in your own consciousness. Your granularity of mindfulness increases and you start getting closer and closer to the clock rate of the nervous system. In other words, if you've got neurons that are firing five to 50 times a second, if the uh, neural substrates of working memory in the upper outer frontal regions of the uh, cortex um, the, uh, are being updated four to six times a second, you can have five mental events a second if you're particularly attentive. You're getting closer and closer as your mind gets steadier and steadier to what your brain is actually doing, which then gives you much more detailed, granular insight into your own being and you feel more and more at home in yourself and finishing through this training of steadiness of mind you start getting access to some non-ordinary states of consciousness deep forms of access concentration in the buddhist tradition the so-called jhanas these four non-ordinary states of consciousness that are described psychologically not spiritually or metaphysically, but they're having experienced them myself, they're not ordinary. You are no longer in Kansas. It's not the huge, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and yet they are our human endowment. We are able to access them. And in these deep states of concentration, uh, there's a lot of purification that goes on. A lot of tendencies are released. You have a real sense of what's possible. Um, and you get a lot of insight, you know, into your own, into your own mind. So that's just steadiness of mind. And that's only the first of the seven. <laughs> that's just the first one. Yeah, uh, I love that. And I, I think it really does speak to why mindfulness and meditation is so powerful mm -hmm. for changing how we experience life. Because if we do gain greater insight and we do create that pause and understanding what's happening inside of us before we respond to the outside world, yeah. then we're less likely to do things that are misaligned with our values or that are destructive for ourselves or for those that we care about. And, and yeah. I think that practice of meditation and mindfulness really is explained. It, it's sort of your, in, in reading your work, you understand why it's all the rage. Yeah. It really is empowering. Yeah. And there's so much research now that's really neat about how mm -hmm. mindfulness and meditation have lasting changes in the brain. In the book, I do a quick summary of that uh, with a lot of reference notes and so forth. But it really gives us confidence that what we practice grows stronger. As my friend, the psychologist Shauna Shapiro puts it, what you practice grows stronger. And that's true. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I'll also mention that I liked in your, in, I think it was in this section is that you, you described that, you know, f for many of us, different kinds of meditation might hold our attention more effectively as we gain this skill. So this idea of just like watching the breath for hours at a time may not work for some of us right. who have what you call a jackrabbit mind. Right. And you may need to choose something that's the object of attention. That's a bit more, uh, um, holding of your attention and, and yeah. to find what works. And in other words, that not everything works for everybody, but you need to find 
the kinds of practice that help you build that muscle of steadying the mind. That's a wonderful and important point to make. It's really okay to focus on something like gratitude or love or the feeling of your whole body or to practice or to meditate, if you will, while you walk. You want to, you're training yourself. There's an element of training and it's okay. It's a little bit like a workout in a way. So you want there to be a little bit of challenge to it, but there shouldn't be so much challenge that it's frustrating and irritating. Uh, you know, we want to be drawn to our practices. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the next practice is warming the heart, yeah. which refers to building minds and hearts that are imbued with compassion and kindness. Yeah. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the neurological basis for the importance of compassion. What, why is it so important to build this, I, this idea of kindness and, and sort of connectedness to, to others? Lots in that. Um, Let's see, compassion uh, is a response typically to suffering, so it kind of presupposes suffering. Kindness could be a response to suffering, but it doesn't presuppose it. Compassion has this quality of tenderness and sympathy and, and awe and wanting to help. Kindness more as a sense of, hey, I, I hope you'll be happy. There's a friendliness in it. And they, they kind of blur together, but it's useful to sort of tease apart these elements. Uh, Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. Uh, neurologically, um, one of the uh, useful things to understand is that as warm-heartedness increases, both its compassion element and its kindness element, love broadly, lovingness broadly, uh, one thing that happens is that naturally oxytocin activity increases in the brain. And this neurochemical hormone uh, it's called a hormone when it operates outside the nervous system. Um, has there are receptors for this neurochemical in both the prefrontal cortex behind the forehead and in the amygdala, the alarm bell of the brain. Technically, as you know, there are two of them. So, uh, in both the uh, amygdala and in the prefrontal cortex, as oxytocin activity increases, related to increased feelings of compassion or kindness, uh, that has a calming and soothing effect. It reduces anxiety because the receptors, for example, uh, for oxytocin in the amygdala are inhibitory. They function like brakes, distinct from the gas pedal of excitatory neuro chemical activity. And so, uh, and you can notice it as you feel a receiving of lovingness, or if you feel an expressing of lovingness, you tend to feel stronger and calmer, less fearful, and more resourced internally to cope with life in, in part through the mechanisms that I've just alluded to here. Yeah. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. I mean, the research on this is so fascinating that when people are um, put through like pain trials, but they're connected physically or even through photographic uh, documents to people that they love, their yeah. experience of pain is mitigated. It's, it's incredible. And from a happiness standpoint, we know that being connected to those we love increases our positive affect. And so yeah. it's it, so to build practices that really engage our compassion muscle and, and to get more facile with it is, is really something that can help us build more happiness. Really true. And one thing, one thing about that just briefly is that we understandably and, and people often feel wounded related to not receiving enough lovingness coming toward them in various forms, in inclusion, empathy, appreciation, liking, and loving flowing in. And understandably, they, they seek it from the outside in. And that's totally appropriate as a therapist. I'm on their side to try to help them find that and so forth. That said, the world is often slow in coming. And uh, meanwhile, though, we have always the capacity unilaterally to gradually uh, nourish and feed and strengthen and express lovingness from the inside out flowing out into the world. And wonderfully, as that quality, those qualities of compassion and kindness, friendliness, happiness for others, uh, seeing the being behind the eyes, um, not walking down the street, wishing ill to other people. As we feel those things, we feel better ourselves. And it's great to know that we have the power to tap into the power of lovingness, even if the world is slow to come. Yeah. And we can also offer it to ourselves. I mean, I love yeah. the work of Kristen Neff and Chris Germer, and we've had Chris Germer on the show before. And mm -hmm. um, 
as you know, I was connected to you through Susan Pollock, who does self-compassion for parents, but being able to direct compassion towards ourselves is such an empowering idea that we can send it out into the world. We can offer it to ourselves and then we can get more skillful at getting it from Mm. other people as well. Yeah. I'm curious for you, what's your favorite compassion exercise or exercise to build on compassion for yourself? Wow. Um, I, I do this in different ways and I even, I started doing it a while ago when I was about to give a talk and it's actually a real laboratory demonstration of what I just said. So I, I try to feel the person behind the eyes, like I'm doing it with you right now. And, uh, and I do it many, many times a day. I try to, including with people who are strangers on the street or even adversaries. That's really interesting to work with what's called the difficult person or the person who is challenging for you. Uh, And so first to slow down for the extra three, four seconds to feel, to get a sense of the person behind the eyes, behind a gendered face, right? Behind a certain, you know, ethnicity, just the being behind the eyes. Who is that? Who are you broadly? Not presuming an entity in there, but it's more like the process, you know, the, the beingness behind the eyes. Tune into that, including f- and then open to the suffering, the difficulty, the strain, the weariness, the burden. Uh, you and I are, are I kn- don't know you well. I know myself well. I'm really quite privileged. I'm quite fortunate. I'm, I can I'm sure you have had some good fortune yourself. And still, we all. We're weary, we're tired, we're aging, we're concerned about others. Um, and we can intuit that in other people. So contact the being behind the eyes, intuit the pain, intuit the suffering without trying to presume or feel superior in any way, but in a very real sense. And then uh, locate the fundamental feeling of, of caring or wishing well. Even knowing that I can't do anything about it or it wouldn't be appropriate for me to do anything about it. But still, I have a, a caring, warm, supportive feeling for you. Uh, you, whoever you are, including Yale right now. And uh, so that's the fundamental practice I do. Um, I do it formally sometimes uh, in meditative ways, you know, where, for example, people will, will say things to themselves like, picking a certain person, may you be safe, may you be happy, and so on. But a lot of it for me is about the feeling of it and becoming kind of wall-to-wall, you know, day-to-day. Uh, and what I noticed when I started doing that before giving a talk, I'd be looking at the audience before I went up on stage while my heart was pounding, and I would just get a feeling for the people in the room. Uh, I'd just look around half a dozen faces and just get a sense of contacting them as beings. And instantly, my own anxiety would reduce and I would be drawn into being of help to them. I'd get out of my head over there with them and then kaboom, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing, right? I'm supposed to be there for them, not me, with my anxious, self-conscious preoccupations and be over there with them. And then boom, I felt better. And of course, it would be easier to give the talk and I would feel a lot less anxious inside. That's really cool. I love I love all those examples. And I love sort of how that relates to being of service to others in a public speaking forum, which is so anxiety provoking for so many people. Yeah. It's a really nice practice. Yeah. Okay. How about resting in fullness, which is a practice that encourages us to develop a sense of peacefulness, contentment, and enoughness. One thing that I think is really important to note, and you, you mentioned this earlier, is that craving and wanting more is built into our neurology. Yeah. And so this idea of resting in fullness sort of runs counter to that natural biology that, that we all live with. And in one sense, we don't want to let go of it because we need to know when we're hungry. We need to sort of know when to pursue things. And so you offer a pretty nuanced view of of wanting and, and fullness. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that. It isn't black and white as one might assume. Yeah. This is, my wish, oh, this is one of the most interesting topics of all. And it's right at the heart of Buddhism, for example, for those who care about that sort of thing, because in the Four Noble Truths, uh, we have the truth of suffering. It's not that life is suffering, it's that there is suffering. Uh, second, the source of so much of our suffering in a word craving, and I'm going to get to that word in a minute, then we have the third noble truth that follows, which says there is a possible end to that craving and therefore to the suffering and the harm that ensues. And then there's a fourth noble truth. There's a path of practice. It's very grounded and very specific and has nothing to do with faith. 
It's all about personal practice, the cultivation of wise intentions, wise view, wise speech, wise mindfulness, and so forth. And so for me, the fulcrum of Buddhist practice certainly is the transition from the second to the third noble truth, from more craving to less craving. What could that possibly mean? So bear with me slightly. Um, From a neuropsychological standpoint, craving is a drive state grounded in a sense of deficit or disturbance in the meeting of an important need. That's the crux of it. So if we ground uh, the Dharma in nature, in life, if we're interested in craving, we have to think about what do we need and how do we manage our needs and how do we experience a sufficiency of needs being met in a changing, often challenging world really at the crux, right? And nobody has really explored that, which is so interesting. Nobody, I'm deeply interested in this. Nobody has really brought to bear the tools of evolutionary neurobiology, you know, in the ways in which craving has been shaped by evolution and the ways in which the management of our needs has been shaped by evolution, especially in the last couple million years in the evolution of our capacity uh, and our needs for relationships, of various kinds, right? So it's really interesting. And a couple of distinctions are useful. Um, between wanting in the problematic sense of drivenness, pressure, contraction, insistence, uh, addiction at the extreme. Uh, and distinct from that, I'll just call it ordinary uh, kind of coping, aspiration, uh, a sense of liking without wanting, or preferring, or undertaking something rather than feeling really contracted around it. And so the point is, we can meet our needs, let's say, for safety or satisfaction or connection, the three big, the big three, met through avoiding harms for safety, approaching rewards for satisfaction, and attaching to others for connection. These are fundamental ideas in psychology and biology. Um, I've kind of organized it in this way, but this is not exotic or, you know, something I just sort of made up. All right. So the point is, even when your need for safety is challenged, you can feel a sense of calm strength in the core of your being. Maybe around the edges, you're kind of nervous about that big truck driving next to you in the rain, but you're a good driver. You know what you're doing, even if your kids are in the back seat. And you're going to move past that truck. You're watchful. You're attentive. But you're not panicking. You're not flooded with anxiety. You're not uh, in a high state of distress. Just because there's a need for safety that's challenged doesn't mean we need to get stressed and fearful and angry about it. Similarly, if we have our needs for satisfaction, we can pursue goals. We can do emails. We can work. But without feeling contracted about it or being hyper-attached to the outcome distinct from being caught up in drivenness or being gripped by frustration or disappointment or addiction to problematic pleasures. The same with relationships, right? Um, We can navigate tricky conversations without having resentment or hate invade our mind. We can deal politically with them with whom we have grievances, say, or we feel misunderstood or mistreated by, but we don't have to hate them. And we don't have to pathologize them or yes. uh, denigrate them. And we can be in touch with the ways in which we are an us broadly, in that we all love our children. We all, you know, we'd rather keep going than die, especially on a decent day. And that will not be our fate. And that's true for everyone. And um, so we can grow in these ways. So this territory, uh, to make it really practical, I'll I'll be super fast here because I know I'm just rattling on. Um, How do you rest in peace, contentment, and love rather than fear, frustration, and hurt? How do you rest in the green zone of balanced equanimity as you deal with the challenges of life? Three things. One, Get out of the red zone as fast as you can. If you got to run into that burning building to grab your kid's teddy bear, I've been there. Um, okay, rev up adrenaline, cortisol. If you have to fight off an attacker or you have to deal with someone at work, you know, who's being really aggressive and inappropriate socially, uh, do what you need to do. Okay, but get out of the red zone as fast as you can. Uh, second, uh, cultivate psychological resources of various kinds. And also do what you can in your environment so that you can meet your needs, you know, successfully, 
In other words, meet your needs, grow psychological resources, develop emotional intelligence, develop social intelligence, uh, go see you as a therapist to improve your you know, relationships of various kinds, uh, become more skillful, become stronger, become wiser, become more determined, become more committed to your exercise or your sobriety, You know, develop these things so that you can meet your needs more effectively. Great. And third, really, really key, when your needs feel met enough, yum, 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 bring a big spoon. Take it in. Let it sink in. Savor it. Take in the good. Let it really sink in. You know, when you feel safe enough, when you feel calm, when you feel strong, marinate in that experience. When you achieve little goals a hundred times a day, pause for a breath to, or half a breath at least, that you finish that email or you got the dishes done or you finished a cycle of some kind of task-oriented thing. Let it sink in. And also, uh, when you feel caring or cared about, love flowing in or love flowing out, slow down, let it sink in. So then increasingly, synapse by synapse, plausibly, we are hardwiring the residues of need fulfillment into the marrow of our being. And so therefore, increasingly, we feel in the core of our being um, fundamentally at peace, fundamentally contented, and fundamentally loved and loving, no matter what's going on around us. And that is a very legitimate goal uh, to develop. And I'm still working on the upper edges of can I absolutely rest in that place uh, in when people are being really crummy, <laughs> you know, or uh, uh, can I rest in that place when I get caught by some residue from my own childhood? You know, that's a growing itch for a person, but we can really, really, really develop in this way. And man, resilient well-being in the core is probably the defining characteristic of mental health and is something we can develop over time. Yeah. And I love those suggestions to just pause in it and savor it. And one of the things that I try to do more and more, and I try to do it out loud with my kids because I think it's a great thing to model. I have young children, um, is, is just narrating it. Like right now, you know, we're all at peace and we're all feeling loved and we're all so lucky to be safe and together and healthy and, you know, whatever it is that you can be grateful for take a moment and, and explicitly engage in that savoring in whatever way works for you. But, um, you know, I do think that sometimes narrating it is just this very sort of easy, simple thing that you can do. And it's a nice thing to do with other people because then you get to share it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I bet you're a stunner as a mom. (laughs) I have some moments that go better than others (laughs) as we all do. (laughs) That's true. but I do appreciate um, what being a mom has taught me in terms of, of happiness. Cause I think that it, it really causes you to reflect and, and want to pass on, you know, better, healthier strategies maybe yeah. than we, we grew up with. Yeah. So the next practice mm-hmm. is being wholeness, which you talk about as accepting yourself fully and feeling whole as a person. So this is a little bit related to the idea of resting in fullness. I, I wonder how you distinguish between these two. Mm. Um, so much of the time we feel divided internally, right? It's kind of like one part of us is struggling with another part of us. And what is it like to feel completely integrated as a whole being, uh, completely self-accepting while managing ourselves? We can accept the fact that Let's say, in my case, I have a strong tendency toward getting overly driven toward a goal. You know, I'm going to go after that goal. And I'm determined to a fault. And I can accept that tendency in myself while simultaneously uh, regulating it. Or I can accept the tendency in me, you know, to get irritated sometimes and a flare and to be kind of hot-tempered. Not so good, but I can regulate it still. Okay, so we have those qualities. Another thing that happens is that, and you can do it right now, and there's good science for this, when you start to get a sense of things as a whole, let's say your body as a whole, like people listening right now can get a sense of their body as a whole, I'm doing it right now, maybe you are too, including perhaps the sensations of breathing throughout the entire body, 
all known continuously as a single experience. We do this routinely with vision. We see imagery as a whole in which there are many parts, in much the same way we can sense as a whole in which there are many individual sensations. Uh, and also we can get a sense of the whole volume of a room or the whole context of a situation. As soon as you start to do that, you just notice you come much more into the present. Your mind gets calmer. It's less conceptual. There's less sense of self. And you're coming more and more into a stability of mindfulness. And that's because when we move into that sense of things as a whole, we start engaging networks on the sides of the brain, especially the right hemisphere for most people, because that's the hemisphere of the cortex that uh, is involved with gestalt processing, taking things as a whole. The left hemisphere in most people, right-handed people, uh, is useful for sequential processing. That's why language evolved in the left hemisphere, because language comprehension and production is sequential. You have to move things in order. So um, as a kind of wonderful hack in your own brain, when you're getting stressed, try to get a sense of things as a whole. And you'll notice that you'll start feeling better. You'll be less preoccupied and definitely less caught up in the default mode network in the back of the midline of the cortex, contrasted with the sides, the lateral or uh, sides of the, of the brain. When the midline cortex gets active, we tend to be focused on task-oriented doing. That's when the front of the midline cortex gets activated. Or we space out in ruminating. Uh, that's when the default mode network toward the back of the midline and spreading through the sides gets activated. And it's also where there's a lot of mental time traveling into the future or the past, so we're not in the present moment. And there's a lot of selfing. There's a lot of self-preoccupation in midline activation. You might notice that when you go more into the sense of things as a whole, um, you have a more impersonal sense or a sense of everything as it is rather than, you know, from me or what about me? Um, the other really, really interesting thing is that it's experientially available to us at any moment. You can do it now. It's a little tricky if you're not used to it, but then you can establish it. You start to realize that, the fact of the experiential matter always is that there's only one mind as a whole or consciousness as a whole. I use the word mind to include emotion, sensation, the totality of consciousness. Okay. Uh, and if you just kind of relax a little bit and be you as a whole, you in the broadest sense, be this moment of experience as a whole with awareness included, as a sense maybe of edgelessness, you know, kind of whole, boom. As soon as you're in the hole, suffering drops out because the structural feature of suffering is always parts struggling with parts, conflict of one kind or another. I want the cookie. I can't get the cookie. Parts struggling with parts. And it's available to us to go into this sense of the total mind as a whole in a non-dual sense, in other words, everything is a single unified gestalt in this moment of experience. I love it. I had mentioned to you before we started the recording that I am working on a book on working parenthood. And what I talk about is sort of the way that we often think about work and parenthood as being at war with one another, conflicting with one another. And what I think is so cool is to start thinking about it more as complementing one another and contributing to like a whole full self and a whole full life. And what's so fun about integrating ancient Eastern philosophy is that you look at sort of yin and yang and the forces of yin and yang do press upon each other, but they contribute to this whole that is richer and fuller and more integrated as a result of those complementary parts. There is this natural way that our mind creates divisions, good and bad, me versus you. But if we can do the kinds of practices that you're recommending, we can step more into that wholeness and fullness and, and not only feel more at peace, but also really feel that enrichment from the two sides of whatever it is that we're conflicted over, which I think is just so empowering and, and such a cool experience. Well, that's really great that you're talking about that because we, we can, of course, 
find these qualities of wholeness uh, systemically, you know, in a couple or in a family or in a life altogether. And uh, I was just thinking as you were speaking that in a very down-to-earth way, you know, to kind of bottom line it, as separation and um, division increases as an experience for a person, so does suffering and harm. On the other hand, as connection and integration increases as an experience for a person, so does well-being and functioning and service to others. Uh, It's kind of straightforward. And maybe last on this one, uh, with all these practices, what I love about them too is that you can get just a little taste of them and you can take it all the way to full enlightenment in regards to that one particular thing. And the wholeness practice, which starts moving now more and more into subtler states of being, uh, is an illustration of that. Uh, It's a wonderful meditative method, and you can do it when you're not meditating just in general. As you take a breath, try to get a sense of your body as a whole. And I think some people will find that easier than others, especially if they're already more whole body, like a yoga teacher, say, or a dancer, or someone who's in nature a lot. I think that also tends to foster experiences of wholeness. But fairly soon, you can train in the sense of your body as a whole. And it's an instant resource and refuge when you're dealing with challenges. It's very practical. And then over time, you start going out into mind as a whole, like the way I'm talking about here, consciousness as a whole, which is not metaphysical. It's not supernatural. It's just that's your experience as a whole. Suffering and worry just falls away because in mind as a whole, there's no problem. Mind as a whole is never a problem. It may contain pain. It may contain sorrow, but we don't add suffering to it. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please help us out by writing a review on iTunes. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. We're at offtheclockpsych.com.